Well, I have the privilege this morning of concluding a sermon series that we've been in for the last six weeks or so, and it's simply a series that we've been calling Relationships, What's Your Status? And regardless of whether or not you like your relationship status or not at the time, uh, we all have one. We all have a relationship status, and we've chosen, and we've chosen for the last three years to do a, a, a series throughout the summer months on relationships because relationships really matter. Relationships really matter. Who we are today and who we'll be tomorrow are deeply impacted by the relationships that we have. Your family of origin, your parents, your parents' parents, your extended family, all of those people, as lovely or as unlovely as they are, have helped to shape who you are now and who you will be in the future. Your friends, your church family, all of those relationships, regardless of how good or bad they are, they will deeply impact and continue to impact who you are as a person. And for that reason, I feel that it's necessary to spend some time discussing from a biblical perspective how we're supposed to handle ourselves, how we're supposed to relate interpersonally to one another in the context of relationships. I feel like we really uh, miss a lot of things. We want to talk about the deep and mystical things of Scripture when we're failing at life. When we're failing at basic things, things that are very significant, things that take up a lot of space in our life. I've said week after week that one of the main reasons that we're on this earth is to love God and love people. If you boil down our purpose here on this earth, it is those two things, right? Everything God asks us to do uh, and everything God asks us not to do boils down to those two very specific things. And when you zoom into that, you see that half of what you're on this earth to do is to relate well to other people. So half of your purpose in life deals with interpersonal relationships. And to get relationships wrong means we get a lot wrong. But to get it right means we get a lot right. And I've said week after week that this material, this series isn't designed to give you ammunition to fix somebody else. But rather, it's designed to give you ammunition and insight and wisdom to help you work on you. To help you work on you. And that's why we unpack relationships each and every year. We've talked to single folks. We've talked about dating and living the good life as a Christian single. We've talked to married folks. We've talked about divorce. We talked about raising children. Last week we talked about healthy communications and we continue this series today and actually conclude this series today by talking about a very sensitive subject, a subject that's very dear to my heart, a subject that's very central to the mission and the vision and the values of this church and that is cross-cultural relationships dealing with, relating to, should I say relating well, to people who are different than you are. People who are different maybe culturally, ethnically, socioeconomically, in terms of faith and other matters. We, it's very important that we deal with that. I don't think we can have a comprehensive relationship series without dealing with cross-cultural relationships, specifically in the context of Christian community and that Christian community reaching the world around it. The truth is that many people on this earth, and perhaps even many people in this room, live rather homogeneous lives. In other words, we, we deal with a lot of sameness. In other words, we're not choosing to actively step across the tracks and relate to other people. We, some of us only do so when we have to. And because of that, I feel like we're missing out on a lot, and a lot of the people that God has called us to minister to and interact as it relates to the kingdom of God, are missing out because we've decided to stay on our side of the tracks. I don't think that's God's plans for us, and I intend to unpack that in a message that I'm just calling a church for everyone. A church 
for everyone. Now, there are little asterisks needs to go by that everyone because you can't build a church for everybody, you know. You can't build anything that everybody's satisfied with. But what I mean by that is building a place with a culture that's welcoming and inviting and considerate of lots and lots and lots of different types of folks. We've long thought that to be impossible. I've just discovered that it's hard, <laughs> right? And many people have shied away from doing that type of ministry and to focusing on those things, not because, you know, it's, it's, it's impossible, but because it's simply hard, and I don't think that's God's best for us. It's not difficult to see that the world we live in is very, very diverse. God and all of his creativity has built just a collage of beautiful people. And I'm blessed that we see that collage when I look out upon you today. But, you know, and, and the, the gospel is spreading all over the world and the Christian faith is being enlarged throughout all the world. The landscape of Christianity is incredibly, incredibly diverse. The problem is, is that we have a problem getting all those different types of folks in the same room on the same day really difficult, man. And again, you look around this room and you don't really see that, but it's it's hard, man, to get all these different types of folks together in the same place, especially as it relates to matters of faith. Sunday is said to be the most segregated hour or two hours or three hours or four hours, depending on what church you go to. (laughs) said to be one of the most segregated few hours of the entire week, and that's really true. And all throughout the week, man, we spend time rubbing shoulders with different types of people, interacting in our work life and in our academic life and all these other different spheres of life, interacting with different people, man. But when it comes time to worship the God that created us and to build and do life together in Christian community, it seems that it's, it's, it's very normal for us to retreat to our separate corners and do life and to do ministry and do community uh, in our own private huddles. Where our white brothers and sisters go and do their white thing in their white church. African-American brothers and sisters go to their black church and they do their African-American thing. Our Latino brothers do their Latino thing. And our, our, our Filipino brothers and sisters do their own thing. And the list goes on and on and on. And I want to pose a question this morning. What's wrong with that picture? What's wrong with this picture? And I would answer that question by saying this. What's wrong with the picture is our churches are segregated. Our Christian communities are segregated because we are segregated. Our hearts are segregated. Our Christian communities are segregated. They prefer sameness because in our heart, in our heart, we prefer sameness and segregation. We need not forget that it's individuals that make up the church. And the broader church will be the collection of what the individuals are. So until we understand that this is an individual heart issue that we're dealing with, we won't make much headway. But what's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with a picture that says that it's okay to go to your separate corners on Sunday morning and do your separate corner thing? What's wrong with that? Well, I think that's a lot wrong with it because when I look at the scriptures, when I see God's heart for his people and Christian community, I see that it's not supposed to be that It's not supposed to be that way. And today we're going to look at a passage of scripture and unpack some things that will discuss in detail why we've chosen to build this type of church and why we've chosen to lean in to reaching across the tracks to people who are different. And the people who have different socioeconomic backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds and all those sorts of backgrounds. We're going to look at a passage of scripture this morning and unpack that. Acts chapter 10 is where we'll start this morning. 
If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, turn to Acts chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles on the edges of the rows. You can feel free to take one of those today. If you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take one of those Bibles as a gift from us to you. If you've been stealing our Bibles, just begin to bring them back and we won't, <laughs> we won't make a fuss about it. Acts chapter 10, um, and I understand that this subject matter is something that's very difficult to, to work out publicly, and because of that, I, I want to ask God's presence uh, to, to come and visit us with this morning. Hospitality, can I please have a handkerchief? I've misplaced mine. Would you? I don't want to be sweating all over the place this morning. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the, uh, this opportunity, Lord, to worship you. Thank you so much, God, for this opportunity to stand before your people and to bring your word. God, I know that this can be a sensitive subject matter. I know, Lord, that depending on the person today, Lord, there are some deep hurts and deep experiences that we've, that we've experienced, Lord, that have created huge chasms in our relationships, Lord, and how we view the world. And God, I ask that your word this morning would be the authority and the wor- your word would help us to overcome those things that keep us stuck this morning. Father, I pray that you would put power on these words that you would given me to speak, God, uh, that your truth and your message might shine free. Lord, I pray that you would move the preacher out of the way this morning so that what you want to say would be said and received this morning. God, I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we look at Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter, the book of Acts is in the New Testament. It directly follows the, the Gospels, which basically the account of Jesus' life, his ministry. The Gospel details his life, his ministry, his death, his burial, his triumphant resurrection. And we turn the page uh, from John, and we're in Acts. And basically, Acts is basically the apostles and the Christians basically responding to what Jesus had done for them and what Jesus had instructed to them. So they're building the church. Faith is spreading like wildfire. The apostles are doing their work. And in this passage that we'll focus on today, we look at the apostle Peter and an encounter that he has with God that deals specifically with our subject matter this morning. Acts chapter 10, we'll start at verse 1. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel, Cornelius, the angel said, Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir, he asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was going, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry, but while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. So we meet uh, for the first time this guy named Cornelius, and this guy named Cornelius is having this rather strange encounter with an angel. Apparently, encounters with angels weren't that 
uncommon then. We see it a lot in scripture. But the angel basically directs Cornelius to go and visit Peter. No, basically go and have Peter come back to share the gospel with him, right? So Peter's supposed to preach the gospel to them. Cornelius is a good guy, but he seems to be missing something, doesn't quite know who Jesus is, hasn't heard the complete message of the gospel. So this vision comes to Cornelius and instructs him to say, hey, have this guy Peter come and share the gospel with you. So Cornelius sends his most trusted messengers to bring Peter back. And as these messengers sort of near the place where Peter uh, is staying, Peter has his own divine encounter. He has his own divine vision. And Peter is praying on this flat rooftop, and he encounters God in a vision. And in this vision, a huge sheet is let down and with all sorts of animals, and the Lord commands Peter to kill the animals and to eat it, right? But there's a problem with that. Peter refuses because most of these animals are considered unclean for Jews according to the law of Moses. God had given his people specific instructions as to what to avoid in terms of their diet, what animals to not partake in. So Peter was probably a little perplexed and a little taken back by this vision. But the voice of the Lord scolds Peter by saying, don't call something unclean if I had made it clean. This happens three times, and then the sheet disappears. So what we see happening here, and if you read this entire uh, chapter, which I encourage you to do, what we see happening here is there's two worlds that are colliding right now. Two worlds collide. Two worlds collide. And we see these two characters in this somewhat bizarre story. We see the characters Peter and Cornelius. Cornelius, as we're told, is a Roman uh, Roman officer. He's a part of the occupying army that was basically running the show among the Jewish people. Um, Cornelius is a Gentile, which basically means he's not a Jew. He's a different type of folks living among uh, Jews. But we also know that Cornelius is a good man. He's a generous man. He's regularly giving to the poor. He fears God. And something tells me that Cornelius was right on the edge, real ripe to receive what God would say to him, real open to the gospel, real ready to receive what God would pour out on him. And then we have Peter. And if you regularly read the scriptures and you regularly hear sermons from the New Testament, Peter is a familiar character. Peter is a Christ follower. Peter is one of the original disciples that hung out with Jesus, that received direct downloads from him. Peter's also responsible for the great work that's happening in the region where the church is growing and people are excited about the faith, people are getting healed, the message of the gospel is being uh, proclaimed. But unlike Cornelius, Peter is a devout Jew who was very faithful to God's law, very faithful to the do's and don'ts of the Jewish faith. And as we read this interesting story, we see that God uses these animals on the, in this vision that's lowered down to Peter to challenge Peter's list of people that were socially off limits. And that should really speak to us today. You see, Peter's status as a devout Jew posed one major problem, and that is that devout Jews only hang out with devout Jews. Devout Jews only hang out with devout Jews. And before we smack our lips and turn our noses, we need not only look at our own social circle, that we tend to hang out with folks that are just like us, that do what we do, that think how we think, that vote like we vote, that dress how we dress, that act like we act. Devout Jews hung out with devout Jews. And I think for the purposes of what we're talking about today, it's vitally important that we note the huge gulf 
the great cavity that lie between Peter and Cornelius, the huge wall of culture and faith that divided them. These are not just men who are divided by just about a 30-mile walk. These are men that are divided by faith, culture, religion, customs, practices, preferences. There's a lot between these guys that separates them. And as we examine what divides them, we see that a major problem is brought to light. A major problem is brought to light. And some would say, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with being different? God has made all of us very different. He's given us all different cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities, different cultural preferences and the like. What's wrong with that? And I would agree with you. I, I would say there's nothing wrong with that. I love the beauty of diversity. I love how different we are. I love how God uses those differences to make a beautiful world that we live in. I love that. I love that. The problem is when our differences get in the way of us relaying the message and relaying the hope of heaven, then that's where the problem comes in. When our differences get in the way of people receiving Christian love from us, then all of a sudden, those preferences, those cultural significance, uh, the, our cultural significance, the things that we lean towards, all of a sudden, those things become problematic. It's problematic for Peter because Peter was a carrier of the gospel message. He'd been commissioned to preach the gospel and to bring the word of the Lord to those uh, who are on the outside of the faith. So when we consider what Peter had to offer, when we consider what he held in his grasp, he had access to Jesus. He had access to the gospel, access to the kingdom, access to salvation. And suddenly we see that the differences that lie between these guys are far more significant because of what Peter was responsible for. Suddenly these differences not only created a chasm between Cornelius and Peter, but it created a chasm between Cornelius and Jesus between Cornelius and the gospel, between Cornelius and the kingdom, between Cornelius and salvation. And Peter's devotion to the law of Moses, Peter's devotion to doing things right, which initially are not a bad thing, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, got in the way and complicated his mission and his value of reaching the lost for Jesus Christ. In fact, he argues with the Lord in this vision. The Lord says, kill and eat or partake. And Peter basically says, Lord, I don't know if you've forgotten the stuff that you wrote to us a long time ago. Maybe they didn't tell you, but we don't eat that stuff. Maybe they didn't get you the memo, but we don't deal with those folks. We don't do that, Lord. Maybe you've forgotten. Beginning to get in the way of him being obedient. Before we shake our fist and shake, point our finger at Peter, we have to ask ourselves, how many of our things, how many of our preferences, how many of our fears and prejudices and bad experiences create a long or short list of people who are ineligible to receive God's love through you? How long or how short is that list of people who just simply are, are invisible to you because of our preferences, because of our prejudices, because of the lines that we draw in the sand. How many people annoy you so much that, God, that you can never be used by God to reach them, to minister to them, to share the gospel with them? How many people are too different to, be, to, to have access to Jesus through you? Now, that's a sobering question. Now, I don't want you to answer it out loud because I want you to answer it honestly, right? 
So we wrestle with that reality, and therein lies the problem, the problem that was being addressed through this bizarre rooftop experience. I think an important question that we can ask ourselves is, what did Peter learn from this experience? Well, if you read further in the chapter, you'll see that Peter agreed to go and visit Cornelius. How could he, how could he disagree after having such a bizarre and profound vision? But he agrees to go and visit Cornelius and share the gospel with him. But when he got there, he discovered that Cornelius was more than ready for him. Cornelius was a ready man. He had gathered all of his friends and family, packed this house because they were ready to hear what Peter had to say. And we read Peter's words recorded in uh, verse 28. Peter says, you know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or associate with you at all. Peter says, I'm breaking some serious rules here. I'm breaking some rules. He continues, but God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. Verse 34, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. I'll read that again. I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism, and in every nation he accepts those who fear him and do what is right This is the message of the good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Do you think Peter got it? You think he's beginning to see what God is trying to show him? You think he's beginning to realize that God wants to open something up as it relates to the gospel and expand this thing across a couple different sets of train tracks? Peter begins to get it, and he climbs down from this rooftop a changed man. This rooftop experience has changed him, and it gets rid of all the justifiable prejudices that he, uh, was, it was okay for him to have. Gets rid of these issues and these circumstances that allow him, with a good conscience, to keep other people, different people, at arm's length. This rooftop experience changes Peter forever. And it not only changes Peter, but it changes Cornelius. It changes Cornelius' family and it begins to change all the Gentiles that will basically begin to hear the gospel message for the very first time. Now, we can bring this home. We can bring this down, right? We can bring this off of the pages of the scripture by saying that God gives us all our own rooftop experiences. And for the purposes of just bringing to light some things, I want to share with you this morning, I want to share with you my story. Some of you have heard my story, but I grew up on the south side of Chicago. Grew up on 48th and Indiana, and some of you who who are familiar with the area, you know that's just a stone's throw from the Robert Taylor um, um, housing projects. It's no longer there anymore, but I live very close to that. I didn't live in the Robert Taylor projects, but I live very close to there. And my neighborhood, man, was 100% African-American. 100% African-American. All my schools, all my churches, our whole social network, whole social network was completely the same, African-American. And there was very little to no interaction with anybody outside of our particular cultural background, with the exception of one teacher here or there, you know, the police that patrolled the area, or a shop owner here or there. So I grew up in a very, very homogeneous setting. I was also a preacher's kid, so I grew up in the church. My parents were devout Christians who taught us to love one another and to, to treat people well and to treat people equally. But I'll tell you something, my parents um, <laughs> grew up in the South during a very difficult time for African Americans in this country. They were raised by parents who grew up at a much worse time for African Americans in this culture. They saw their peers and their family members mistreated by whites. They themselves 
having experienced being uh, discriminated against and mistreated at the hands of white people. And although they tried to teach us that we're all God's children and that we should all treat people, treat people fairly and treat people nicely, that message didn't always, that message didn't always come through. In fact, there were lots of times where things were said and stories were told and little things would slip out that will communicate something different than, hey, we're all the same, we're all God's people, treat everybody, love everybody, trust everybody. Things would slip out here and there. And it was a message that we got that was bathed in a negative history and hurt feelings and misunderstandings. And although they didn't mean to send that message to us kids, the message that I got was, son, it's us against them. Hey, watch your back around those folks. Be careful, don't trust those folks, son. And that's not exactly what they said, but that's kind of what I heard. That's what I picked up. Now, my parents weren't trying to raise hateful children. They weren't trying to raise bigoted sort of children that hated, you know, people that they didn't know. What they were trying to do is prepare their children for a cruel and sometimes vicious world. Their efforts were noble. <laughs> their efforts were noble. But what I received was a recommendation to stay in my corner. What I received and what I heard was a warning against veering out and interacting with different types of people. Now, you combine those messages that I got with the fact that we were living in a very homogeneous environment. You combine those messages with the, the, the very skewed pictures that you saw on news. You combine those messages with going to an all-African-American school, particularly a school that really sought to teach us about our background as African-Americans and instill a degree of pride, right, and make sure we understood about the negative history of slavery and oppression and segregation in this country. You couple all of that stuff together and what you have is a recipe, a recipe for some serious disaster as it relates to cross-cultural relationships. It was serious, man. I didn't realize it at the time, but I began to seriously realize it when in 1999 I graduated from Dunbar High School and I traveled two hours south, two and a half hours south, to attend the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. And let me tell you, I hadn't been culture shocked like that ever in my life. I was aware that I was a minority before I left, but I was super aware of it when I hit Champaign. A very different place, lots of different types of people. From my vantage point, it was an overly, overwhelmingly white majority, and I found that to be very, very uncomfortable come, as a city kid coming from the south side of Chicago, a very homogeneous setting. I was very outside of my element, very uncomfortable, and very unsure what I thought about these new people and what they thought about me. But I was very determined to stay connected with Christian communities, so I joined you know, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which was, again, a, a very good representation in terms of you know, diversity. I was probably one or, of two of uh, the African Americans that made up that particular chapter in that Christian fellowship. It was very easy to spot us, you know, in a room. But God just kept singing to send me to these groups of people that were very different from me. Kept sending me to these different, I wanted so badly to like be comfortable and I wanted so badly to, you know, just experience some of my cultural, cultural stuff, but the Lord just kept sending me place after place, group after group, to things that made me very uncomfortable things that made me very unsettled. 
I mean, now as I look back, I understand exactly what the Lord was doing. But in those moments, it was very, very difficult, man, very uncomfortable. But let me tell you something. As I interacted with those people, as I began to let my guard down, I made friends with those folks. I began to see differences as not just something that was just bad or something to make fun of. I began to value these people and their backgrounds. And what I also discovered is that many of these people didn't grow up around anybody that looked like me. And so as I was learning them, they were learning me. And as these friendships grew and as they emerged, you know, God was just beginning to do something in my heart. Just begin to break down these prejudices and all this stuff that came as a result of just living in a pool of sameness for my whole life. And being shaped by well-intentioned but misinformed people. God was doing a work in my heart. And I began to lower the walls of defense that came with interacting with these people. And slowly I began to see individuals. Shortly after that, I joined the Vineyard Church again, which was a, mostly uh, a white congregation. And more of the same stuff would happen. Just make friends. That didn't make it any less uncomfortable for me. Let me just tell you that. But the Lord just began to show me that these are real people with real stories that are of much worth and value in the kingdom of God. And as I began to make friends with these folks, you know, something happened, right? All of a sudden, those jokes that used to be so funny, you know, those ethnic jokes, you know, those racial jokes about other races, those things that were so funny, they were funny because they were talking about nameless, faceless people that I had no interactions with. All of a sudden, those jokes, they weren't as funny anymore. All of a sudden, those broad generalizations about different cultures and different types of people, all of a sudden, those things didn't ring true anymore. Because you weren't just talking about nameless, faceless people. You were talking about my friends now. Talking about, you're talking about people who are close to me now. And all of a sudden, those things weren't funny anymore. Because you're talking about Mike now. You're talking about David. Those jokes about white people, they weren't funny to me anymore. Because you're talking about my buddies now. You're talking about my friends now. Those broad, sweeping generalizations that were negative and based on prejudice and discrimination, all of a sudden they didn't ring true anymore because I knew a guy now, and that wasn't true. That might be true of a lot of them, but you can't say all because, you know, David's not that way. You can't say all anymore because, you know, my wife, she's not that way. And what God began to do through relationship. So specifically through Christian community is he begins to break down these things in my heart. And I felt like I had to respond differently to the people in my heart and in my life. And as God began to birth within me a vision to plant this church, I realized that we have to plant something different. We have to start something different. So several years ago, I began to sort of God started to help us to dream and to have visions about what this church would look like. And our sending pastor said, listen, you can pick anybody from this community and you can take them with you. And I looked around, this overwhelmingly white congregation, I thought, how on earth am I going to build my team from this? If I take all the, you know, if I take a multicultural team, I would deplete the church of all of its diversity. <laughs> right? But God was faithful, man. He was, he was faithful. And every time I would murmur and complain about our church wasn't diverse and how churches wasn't diverse, I would hear the Lord say, listen, when you build your church, when you start your church, just make sure you don't do it like that. Make sure it's different. And the Lord blessed us with a multicultural team to come to this multi multicultural city and build a multicultural church. And we've grown proportionate 
to that team and diversity on our team. And when I look back at all those uncomfortable experiences, particularly what I would call those rooftop experiences where God was teaching me and instructing me and rewiring me and pouring in me value for different types of people, I realized that all of those uncomfortable moments was to give me a social education that I couldn't have gotten any place else. I thought I went to, to Champaign-Urbana to get an academic education. But what the Lord had waiting for me was a social education, and that social education gave birth to what you see here today. What you see here today. I begin to see that we're called to live differently when it comes to this issue of diversity. And more than that, we're, uh, we're entrusted with the responsibility of raising our children differently. Listen, I think about all the time that I spent in church. I spent a lot of time in church. There was something virtually every night. All those different types of church encounters with all those different people. And I wonder what my life would have been like. What my life would have been like. What might my disposition have been when I moved to Champaign if I had been going to church and interacting with different types of folks. Learning their value. Learning their significance. Appreciating them. I wonder what might be different. And listen, I, I really, I really covered that for my children. I'm really blessed that they get to grow up in this town and grow up in this church where they get to experience different types of people, not just experience and tolerate them, but to appreciate them and to realize that God has put people in our lives, man, because there are much worth, much worth and value to him. So I think it's important that we not just leave it there, but we ask ourselves, how do we walk this out? How do we walk this out on an individual level and how do we walk this out corporately as a church? I know I've said a lot this morning, but how do we walk this out? How do we walk this out? First, I think it's important that we deal with this on an individual level first. Church isn't going to magically hit some switch and change your heart as it relates to diversity. Change your heart as it relates to valuing other people. There's no switch that we can have to do that. If it, listen, if, if there was, I'd, 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 I'd deplete all of our resources to get it. But such a thing does not exist, deal with this issue, and to break through these things, we have to let God do some individual work on our individual hearts and examine our individual prejudices and things that keep others at an arm's length. Just let God put his finger on those bad experiences that has shaped how you view other people. Let God deal with those circumstances and the misinformation that you received or the lack of information that you, uh, you know, the lack of information that you have as a result of living in, in, in a place where everybody is the same by your own choosing. This is an individual thing that will work itself out eventually corporately. But individuals make up this church. And if we're going to be a church, that's going to be different. If we're going to be a people, that'll be different. We've got to be individuals that let this grip our hearts. Secondly, I think if we're going to build a church for everyone and be individuals that are different, I think that God is calling us. He's calling us to be welcoming to different types of folks and not just open. A lot of people say, hey, I want diversity, you know. And being, you know, the minority member of many of the organizations that I've been a part, particularly faith organizations, I heard a lot. People ask me a lot, hey, what do we have to do to get more diversity around here? What do we have to do? And if I had this language back then, what I would have said, listen, you've got to be welcoming to different types of people and not just opening. And there's a difference. When I'm open to you coming, I say, listen, man, this is what we cooked. You can eat that if you want. 
Listen, we cook chicken and rice. You want some chicken, you want some rice, you can eat, right? It's being open. I'm okay with you coming in. You can hang out here if you've got nothing better to do. Sure, let yourself in, you can let yourself out. That's being open. But being welcoming is entirely different. When I'm welcoming you to, your, to my house, I might call you ahead of time and say, hey, what do, you, what do you like to eat? I might see if you have any dietary restrictions, if you have any allergies. I might cook something that you actually eat. I might try to become something or have an element of something that you might actually enjoy. Because I want you here. Because I'm welcoming you here. I think far too many churches are open. They're open. And I guess that's the first, you know, first couple steps to being open. But I think God is calling us to be a welcoming community. Welcoming community. And we need not get rocked to sleep here, SSV, because we're a diverse church. We still have a long way to go here. We still have some things to build into the culture of what we do here that's welcoming and not just open to the people around us. That's number two. And finally, number three, and worship team, you can come up. Uh, and I think this is very important. Don't just make exceptions. Don't just make exceptions. I realize as I interact with all those different places that made me very uncomfortable, that was very difficult and different from what I was used to, I realized that a lot of people were making exceptions for me. They had their prejudices. They had their issues with different types of people. But when they interacted with me, they basically said, hey, you're different. They, they thought they were paying me a great compliment. Hey, you're different. I really hate all of the other people in your ethnic group. But you're different. Now think about how prideful and how silly that is. You've got this set of prejudices. You've got this set of ideas. You've got this set of things that you believe to be true about all people in this particular category. You meet someone or you meet a couple people that are different from that. And rather than saying, you know what, I was wrong about that, you come to the conclusion that I was right about that. But somehow, out of God's goodness, <laughs> he popped one out that wasn't quite like that. And I think that many of us, as we list off you know, the number of minority friends or non-minority friends that we have, sometimes we can feel like, because we made an exception for one or two people, that we really get this. And I just want to call you back from that edge, because that's not the truth. We've made exceptions for people. And just because you go to a multicultural church doesn't mean God has gripped your heart as it relates to different types of folks. You understand what I'm saying? So I'm challenging each and every one of us, along with these other challenges, not to make exceptions, but let God thoroughly convert your heart, thoroughly convert your understanding of how every person on this earth, no matter their sexual orientation, no matter their faith background, no matter their ethnicity or their culture or socioeconomic background, what side of the tracks they live, all of these folks are made in God's image and are of much worth and value. And as carriers of God's goodness, as carriers of his message and the hope of heaven, we have a responsibility, folks, to make sure that no person in this, on this earth is ineligible to receive God's love and to receive our, God's goodness and receive the hope of heaven from us. Listen, that's the church that we're building here. That's the church that we're building here. And I think we have a long way to go. And I realize that many of you are from different churches today. And I realize that many of those churches are very homogeneous. And that's not a knock against you. 
I'm just saying that won't you take some of this back with you? Won't you ask God and wrestle with what God can do within you? Now, you're not going to kick your pastor's door up and say, listen, we need to get some more white people in this church. <laughs> or we need some more Latinos. Or we need some more African Americans. Don't do that. Okay? That's, that's the, don't do that. But ask the Lord, God, what do you want to change in me? Uh, what do you want to do in me? What do you want to do in me? What do you want to do in me? And God's eager to show us because his heart, man, his heart is to see people and lives changed. And that won't happen if there's scores and scores of people who can't access God's love through you. Let me pray. God, I thank you so much for this message. I know that it's challenged lots of folks here, Lord. It's still challenging me. And I, I'm in a biracial marriage with biracial children. And you're still gripping my heart as it relates to this issue. So, Father, I pray that today there will be no condemnation. I pray that you would get rid of guilt, Lord, but I pray that your holy conviction would do the work in our hearts that you want to do this morning. Father, I pray that you would speak clearly and deal very specifically with issues and areas of our heart, Lord, that need your touch and need to be turned around as it relates to this issue. Father, we want to build the church that you've called us to build. We don't want to leave any stone unturned as it relates to reaching each and every person that you've called us to. And God, today we say yes to you, yes to your plan, yes to what you want to do in our life, no matter how painful or uncomfortable that might be. Do your work in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.